0: Welcome to the AI Chat Podcast. I'm your host, Jaden Schaefer. Today on the podcast, we have the pleasure of being joined by Natalie Tessemer, who is a fellow at the NYU Law Center for Cybersecurity. She was formerly at the U.S. Department of Justice, where she was a lead for AI, representing the U.S. in global treaty negotiations at the Council of European Convention on AI and a federal prosecutor. She also worked at the U.S. Department of Defense on big data and AI issues. She has policy experience from CSIS and she received her bachelor's from the University of Southern California and her JD from Georgetown University Law Center. We're super excited to have you on. Welcome to the show today, Natalie.
1: Thanks so much, Jayden. I'm really happy to be here and have a little chat about AI.
0: Super excited uh, to have you on. As I mentioned, what I wanted to kind of kick this off with was asking you a little bit um, about You know, if you could tell us a little bit about how your experience as a federal prosecutor, how that kind of shaped your perspective on the ethical implications of AI.
1: Yeah, absolutely. You know, one of the fascinating things about being a federal prosecutor is you are working for law enforcement. You are a law enforcement officer in some ways. But the people I was working with were so concerned about the ethical implications of every single thing that we did and about every side and so that means that even though i was on the law enforcement side i feel like i had a much more well-rounded perspective than i might have had otherwise and a big part of that is the credit to the justice department we were always bringing in other people to kind of hear their thoughts and and kind of civil liberty sides of things um but so i was in the computer crime and intellectual property section and one of the big things that i was really focused on is you know major cyber threats and i was very exposed to um child sex trafficking cases And that is where I really saw, I think, to me, one of the biggest benefits of AI because our prosecutors and our law enforcement is able to make incredible strides in finding child sex crime perpetrators using facial recognition and using AI in a way that is night and day without the technology. On the flip side of that, though, I also saw how people would try to use facial recognition for the other side and try to use it for oppressing civil liberties. And so one of our jobs as a prosecutor is to try to make sure that we were always um, looking at the ethical implications of everything we were doing and doing kind of a balancing of equities.
0: Yeah, that is so, so fascinating. That's incredible. You know, a lot of times I hear from people talking about um, the downsides of AI and, and kind of like, especially with the facial recognition stuff, I think we hear and we talk a lot about like. Uh, countries like China and, and the ways they're kind of implementing facial recognition in, in smart cities to, you know, ding your social credit score if you jaywalk when you're not supposed to, or of course, like worse things. Um, and I think a lot of people kind of get concerned about some of the technology from that perspective. But that's so, it's so cool to hear from your perspective, like some of the incredible use cases that are really helping people, of course, like an area like child sex trafficking. Is such a, a difficult um, field to work in. And any tools that you have that can help with that, like make an incredible, uh, you know, that have some incredible benefits to, to really helping that. So that's so interesting to hear your perspective on that. I'm wondering if you can share some insights from your time at the US government um, in regards to kind of the role of AI and national security specifically.
1: Absolutely. You know, there's so many different kinds of AI tools, and I think that, you know, in my various jobs, whether I was at the Defense Department, kind of doing a little bit more of intelligence work, or at the uh, Department of Justice, I got to see a lot of different sides. Of it. So I mentioned facial recognition, object recognition is a really other interesting case. I think that, you know, um, there's a lot of battle space awareness that can be done in a different way with AI algorithms and AI tools that, that make it safer for troops who are on the ground. Um, There's obviously a lot that happened on the drone and autonomous weapons side of things. And I was really proud that the government has always had ethical AI policies, I think, you know, as far back as 10 years ago on those kinds of issues. But once again, a lot of what I saw is how do we use AI and technology and national security to minimize any kind of risk to civilians and also to U.S. people? Um, And then the other interesting side of this, too, is protecting personal data. And that gets into cybersecurity. And I think that when folks look at, think about intelligence and national security, they don't always think about cyber defense. But AI is playing a very big spot in that space to make sure that we're protecting our critical infrastructure.
0: That's that's amazing. And I'm super happy to uh, hear from you, um, you know, really the, the commitment the U.S. government's made. I think probably not a lot of people know exactly where the U.S. government stands on that. Um. So that's definitely very comforting because it's definitely a concern I'm sure a lot of people have, especially as we're building out a lot of these systems. Um, and yeah, again, just so many incredible use cases that, you know, really have the ability to help so many people that have the ability to help our troops and, and so many others. So really, really fascinating. Something I'd love to ask you about um, is a little bit about, you know, what are some of the key challenges you faced when you were re- representing the U.S. in global treaty negotiations? I think specifically at the uh, the Council of Europe Convention on AI.
1: The biggest challenge was the definition of AI. And it's very nitty gritty it's word by word specific, but it changes everything. Are we thinking about AI as being any kind of prediction making tool? that would include a word predictor in Microsoft Word or on your Outlook email or are we only looking at tools that have a sense of autonomy and that are really making kind of human-like perceptive choices that closes that box a lot and so there's a lot there's a very big debate in the international community and even within the United States about what those definitions look like because it changes how we regulate and how broad regulation can be so that's the first one the second one is I, I mean, I, I call it the China problem. That's my own personal yeah. label for it. But but what do we do about countries that are using AI, like you mentioned, in ways that are extremely averse to protecting civil liberties? And how do we create a regulation that allows other countries who are kind of going through the appropriate level of checks and balances and ethical review to have similar AI capability, but not get into this standpoint of where China is? So a great example of that is is China has an AI prosecutor. And so you mentioned they do social scoring, it's more than that. They've got an AI algorithm that's automatically recommending people to have charges faced against them. We would never do something like that, right? We would never do something like that in the United States because we require so much more in our judicial system to even bring a case. So I feel comfortable with that. But then if we think about facial recognition, we and you and I both want facial recognition when we go to a large sporting event. We want every single person who's coming in to be scanned against the top 10 terrorist watch list. That in our safety. But then what happens when you have a company like Madison Square Garden who's using the same technology to then pull out people working <laughs> for a law firm representing against them? And so how do we regulate that? And can we regulate the technology or are we trying to regulate the use case? But then you can't really regulate the use case because... It's really about how it's used and for what purpose. And that gets really hard when you're sitting at a negotiating table. And then the last thing I'll say that I was a little surprised. These these were my first international negotiations. And Uh it's very slow. Everyone has to get clearance on every word they say, which is good. It shows these are a lot of westernized countries that have democratic processes. But Uh it means that when you're standing up on the floor, you've got your three sentences you're allowed to say. And then if that's it, and then if we want to change something, we have to go back in the United States and get a review from 10 individual agencies and the White House and kind of public input to change what we're going to say, which is hard.
0: Yeah, yeah, that that definitely sounds incredibly challenging, especially when you have multiple countries uh, doing that. It's so fascinating, uh, you know, talking about, of course, the Madison <laughs> Gardens situation was uh I think a lot of people think it's like kind of like funny, but also ridiculous. And it's like, okay, we definitely should, should fix that kind of problem. Um, But then, yeah, you, you don't want terrorists coming into a sports event. So like you understand why the technology is there. I think China is uh, definitely a big issue. A lot of people are concerned about. They've just rolled out a bunch of regulations recently, which I'm sure you've seen where like essentially uh, they have regulations and rules for training AI models. You're not allowed to have like a certain percentage of the data in your AI model that goes against like their their uh you know the communist party's like ideologies and lines like if they can find more than a certain percentage of like the total data included so it makes it really difficult right you have like of course open ai with chai Chibiti that scooped up the whole internet and so we have these massive data sets to create like chinese companies are really going to struggle in in those regards and in, in addition of course it's like they can't include anything in the training data that uh, the Chinese Communist Party is blocking with their, you know, the Great Firewall or whatever. So anything they're trying to censor from the the government. So it's just like very fundamentally different ways we're looking at AI. But China is kind of the other big player producing some of these multi-million, multi-billion dollar um, AI models and plays. And um, I mean, my personal concern is that China is going to try to compete with us at a very high level because they see what the stakes are. They're going to create these powerful AI models And then they're going to get rolled out and American consumers are going to take like, well, this like really cool GPS tool with like a Chinese AI model embedded in is really useful. So like, I'm just going to use it because it's cheap and cool. But then there's going to be like the almost like ideological warfare or some of the concepts that us as a country may not agree with, but they're embedded into the AI that we have taken. It's almost like a Trojan horse. So that's what that's that's one of my concerns in this whole regard. In any case, um, in regards to this whole kind of geopolitical uh, arena and area. What I'm what I'd love to kind of get your opinion on is like, how do you think AI will affect global geopolitics, especially in terms of, you know, international law and treaties?
1: Well, Jaden, I mean, you brought up the transfer of data and and how Chinese data sets are kind of being shaped differently than U.S. data. That's, and that's a great place to start here, because and the other side of that is a little bit more of the national security side how is, is how does a company like open ai who has these massive data sets that can in some ways represent a lot of u.s purchasing power and a lot of consumer demand and and then that data set can then be used by a foreign adversary which could be a potential threat and i think that that kind of ties into how the u.s and other countries should think about ai from a global side because all of the sudden data and we've seen this in other ways, but but data become uh, be, become the ability to cross borders and be used for to make predictions against someone's population potentially. So so that's one thing I I see. I also think that there's there's this piece of how other country, companies and from different countries and how the country regulation themselves are going to want to use AI tools differently. And we see that a lot. I you know the U.S. I think has been very at the forefront of wanting to use AI tools to improve Defense Department production. I I absolutely love the op-ed that um, Deputy Secretary Kat Hicks wrote just about all the possible benefits of the Defense Department using AI. But there's other countries that might not think that that's appropriate to use AI in any relation to military, whether we're just trying to improve a human operations and human resources side of things. And that's a, a sticky point. And and then on the other side of this, there's countries that are using AI much more for tax benefit determinations and social welfare determinations. And we in the United States might not think that's as appropriate because so many of these cases are so fact specific, based on the individual person. That how could you even create a generalized model to be able to answer a question? So that factors in a lot on the regulatory side. Um, and I think that we will also see some potential shifting of alliances on this specific issue. And we see that across other sides. There, there are some countries that we are very strongly aligned with on specific issues. And I think we might see that a little bit in how this geopolitical game popped up. But a lot of this is going to end up being, I think, Western countries countering China.
0: Yeah, I, I tend to agree with you there. Like I cover a handful. I, I pretty much produce like three or four podcast episodes a day covering a ton of different news and I've been doing this for the last year and the overwhelming trend I'm seeing here is it's like the West versus China on a lot of these uh, AI issues. If we're just looking at like who has who's putting the most resources and most manpower, the most regulatory thought into this, there's a lot of different aspects. I think China is the major adversary um, if you if you call it that. I know. Yeah. Anyways. So I think it's very interesting and a lot of the issues that you brought up I think are really important to think about. I feel like we are seeing a bit of a shift, maybe here in in the West, not not totally, but there was a time a number of years ago where a lot of the top tech firms in the U.S. refused, or a lot of employees at them refused to work with the depart the um, Department of Defense. Google, of course, is a very notable one uh, that was doing some deals, and a lot of the employees kind of revolted, and they and they stopped doing that. So. There is this kind of like concept, but I do feel like the the tides are shifting a little bit in a sense that we see, you know, there is a need. There's obviously like a lot of geopolitical strife. There's Russia invading Ukraine. There's Hamas and Israel. There's China threatening Taiwan. There's a lot of areas. And I think people are realizing like we really do need to make, make sure that we are taking every competitive advantage we can in probably a military sense, regardless of, you know, your opinions on war and peace and how to bring that about. Um. Making sure we have the the strength, and so I think that transfers from the tech side. Now AI is the big focus of the tech side, so I'm I'm seeing a lot more people open to that. There's a lot of ethical questions, and and I know you brought up a lot of issues there. So that kind of brings me to my next question. I would love to ask you about, which is like, if you can elaborate a little bit on the concept of responsible AI and how you think it kind of differs across industries.
1: Absolutely, responsible AI is, is a buzzword that gets thrown everywhere, as I'm sure you're known and as you know and. And people are always saying, well, we think AI should be more responsible. My question to companies and to different kinds of public service folks is always, well, responsible to who? Because if you've got a company who is wants to be responsible in AI, responsible to their investors might look very different than responsible to the public. And so that brings up a, a very interesting balancing of equities problem. Responsible to the public might be really taking every possible step to protect data, and to not do any kind of sourcing from places that might have any, you know, wishy-washy uh, data regulation and PR issues and potential privacy problems, but that might not make the most amount of money. Or responsible to the public might be we are not going to release this latest model that might be a video, al- a video AI algorithm that could create a deep fake. But the investors might want that, or the board might want that. Or even consumers might want that. Some companies, there's there's a few different video AI companies that are really very successful in creating video avatars for consumers for companies to use for training videos. But those video avatars could potentially be used for something else, depending on which company we're looking at. So I, that that's always hard. I think that it, it does. There needs to be a balance and test between the the rights of the rights and the interest of the public the rights and interests of consumers and the rights and the interests of investors. And I'm always probably going to come out a little bit more on the public side, but I understand that that's not always sustainable for companies. And so there's, there's a bit of that. I do think that we're going to see that the companies that are tracking a lot of these upcoming regulations, which really are geared toward making companies more responsible in their AI, having training for all of their employees coming into contact with these algorithms, having different kinds of transparency requirements those are going to be the companies that make it and those are going to be the ones that are around in 10 years
0: yeah i 100 percent agree with you and i love your concept you like your question of like responsible to who when talking about building responsible ai so that is a really uh pointed question a lot of companies and people should should be asking themselves i think um one thing that like i struggle with when looking at this issue is um when you're, when you're talking about kind of responsible AI and I want to ask you a little bit about uh, some of the, the ethics in corporations but the thing that I struggle with is like a lot of times when I hear people be like oh you need to make sure your AI is responsible they're like okay well X, Y, and Z technology we could use for bad we need to kind of shut that down I don't I believe that if, uh, inevitably if the technology is there and exists people will create it and it's going to go open source and just not be as controlled if that's the way it goes so like The thing that I struggle with is, like, I've kind of removed myself from my, like, oh, you can't do certain technologies because of the bad implications of, like, bad implications, which might have been, like, more of my opinion before, to, like, okay, we have to just let everything ride out in a way. We have to build everything, but because whether we do it or China does it, someone's going to do it, Um, and then we just have to ask ourselves, like, how can we make this tool as safe as possible Um, because it's inevitably going to get built? People are going to make bootleg open source models of Whatever we don't want them to do. So, like, you know, what are our offensive approaches to defend against that? Anyways, that's, I'm sure, a little bit more of a philosophical question, but something I would love to ask you kind of in that vein is, you know, what are the most pressing issues in AI ethics that corporations need to address today?
1: Absolutely. David, data data privacy is one of the biggest ones because all of these companies are, we've seen that the the data privacy side has not always been at the forefront. And when it's not at the forefront, then we have problems. And, and an example of this might be, you know, the earliest models of ChatGPT that where the API could be taken by any company and then that API data was being sent back to the main company. Well, what happens if you're a small healthcare company? And you've got and you, so you've, you have this API of ChatGPT embedded in your website. You've got someone coming on there and saying, you know, I'm 60 years old. I have this problem in my leg. I have XYZ. And then the chat GPT algorithm is kind of helping them figure out what kind of doctor they need to see, as an example. Well, when all of that data flow was still continuous with not just OpenAI, but it wasn't so strongly integrated and protected only in that small API user, that means that now we've got potentially this person's medical information. And we're living in an age where no privacy information can actually be de-anonymized. That doesn't exist anymore. Now there's always a way to find out who someone is, what their background is. And there are a lot of people who say, well, so what? Well, that now gives information for potential hackers. And we see that happening a lot. We see uh, a lot of organized crime groups. And this is something I saw a lot as a prosecutor. We see organized crime groups who are taking people's names and identities. And then they're able to find their credit card information. And then we've got really small mom and pop shops around the world getting scammed out of $100,000. Well, that's everything to these people. And these kinds of consequences really are detrimental to the functioning of society in this kind of um, digitized world. So that's my big concern is data privacy. The other big ethical concern is, as you're saying, technology that goes a little too far. Um, I think that there are technologies that are being developed that might be pushing that line i understand what you're saying about how you can't always stop the development of that technology but i also think that there is some responsibility to not push it out and not commercialize it in a way that really makes it available to everyone we don't do that for chemical weapons i think that you know we all know that probably there are many places in the world that have the ability to develop a biological weapon, but we're not pushing those out. And Mm -hmm. I think that in some ways we need to look at some AI capabilities in a similar way. An example of this might be a real-time instantaneous, no human review required drone. That does not exist. Uh, But that would be detrimental. But we could very easily create that technology. Mm. But we shouldn't. And if it is being created, we should not commercialize it. We should not publicize it. So I do think companies have a duty to do that.
0: Yep. I, I, I do agree with you, especially on the company side, Um, especially when you look at like, what are the barriers to entry? Well, to create something like ChatGPT, it's hundreds of millions of dollars. So like, yes, we shouldn't create like bad versions of that technology and spend millions of dollars developing tools. You know, of course, if our adversaries or other people, bad actors want to develop that, like there's not as much we can do to stop them. We'll, we'll try our best. Um, but definitely not giving them uh you know a leg up on that. As far as the autonomous drones, I did see reports that Ukraine, I believe, uh was launching some of the first autonomous AI drone technology. Um so like not a lot of comments on that, but it does look like it exists and it's out there. If it's possible people will make it. And so my thing is just like what do we do if all the things that were possible were made? Like what are the safeguards? What are the things we put in place? Um Something I would love to ask you about is, you know, how do you see the role of regulatory bodies evolving in the context of AI development and uh, deployment?
1: A lot of what regulatory bodies are going to end up doing is preventing companies from being able to produce certain kinds of technologies if they want to sell them to different audiences. So that that's going to be, I think, the EU AI acts um, on this whole space, for example. Now, companies that don't have the ability or the desire to make some of their algorithms completely transparent or to share kind of a lot of their API algorithm, and there's a a very long list of requirements, those companies are not going to be able to operate in Europe without the threat of being fined. Now, some companies are probably going to take the fine. We've seen that with GDPR. But GDPR has been kind of effective in some ways because we're seeing some companies really do have to change their practices, whether that's just a banner that says you are now entering a GDPR zone. Here are the different privacy laws that apply. That's still something. So I think we're going to see that a lot. We are going to see, I think, some difference in the types of companies that are able to do contracting with the government, whether it be the federal government or European government, based on different kinds of requirements. Uh, We're already seeing that a little bit. I mean, there's no U.S. law on AI right now, but there's a lot of drafts out there. The White House published their... um, you know, blueprint for an ethical bill of rights, which I think that companies are not necessarily following, but they're paying attention and they're noticing them. And and also it looks a heck of a lot better for a company to say, oh, I am actually providing a right to notice when someone is being targeted by my AI system. I think, you know, that, that kind of goes in some ways. So I think we're seeing a little bit of that. It's going to be really interesting to see where the US ends up, finally coming out on AI regulation. My guess is, unfortunately, that so many of these things are going to be watered down because there's so many different viewpoints on every side. And I think it might take a little while for us to really have something that is changing the landscape in a substantial way.
0: Do you think the U.S. will just kind of default to copying the regulation out of the EU, for example, in a similar way that the EU came out with GDPR and now essentially by default, most American companies Follow that because they do business in the EU. Um, do you think that will it'll just kind of like be adopted, or do you think there's going to be some fundamental differences the U.S. takes?
1: We're still figuring out what the final version of the EU AI Act is going to look like. I think it's going in a positive direction um, from the first draft I saw a couple of years ago. It's it's really come a long way in bridging some of you know our concerns with the U.S. government and concerns from U.S. companies. One of the initial concerns about the UAI Act was that it was very stifling for innovation, and they backed off on some of those provisions a lot. So I think that yes, we might end up in that situation. The other one that I'm, you know, personally biased about and excited about is the Council of Europe AI Convention because I was kind of doing negotiating on that, and and once again, I think that you know if that if that treaty comes out in the next couple of years, the U.S. would hopefully sign on to it. That's never a guarantee, but hopefully sign on to it. And that might become a kind of a de facto law in the way that we follow international treaties. I do think that these regulatory advancements are going to be made abroad before they're made at homes.
0: Okay. Yeah, that's that's very interesting. Okay. One thing I would I'd love to ask you along this vein, because I think this is probably one of the areas that has gotten the most criticism regarding AI and regulation. So I'd love to get your take on it. But that is the fact that... Um, uh, the U.S. right now, obviously, we've done a number of like congressional hearings and other things where they brought in a bunch of big AI players. And I think the most notable is the fact that we have people like Sam Altman from OpenAI calling for more AI regulation. And the criticism there is that everyone's saying, you know, he's kind of scooped up the whole Internet, created this tool that's incredibly popular, raised $10 billion, kind of the number one AI person. Now he's calling for more regulation to essentially stipe, to build a moat, but a regulatory moat around his company. Do you, what? What does the relationship look like that, from your perspective, that you've seen between the enterprise and government? And I understand, like, there's a necessity because I would hate for the government to just create regulations without consulting, um, without consulting, like, the industries that they regulate. But at the same time, it's like, if it's just the big players, how are we kind of avoiding a situation essentially that people are concerned about, where we stifle um, innovation for the smaller players or newcomers in the space by the big ones?
1: I, my impression has always been that there are some companies that raise the regulation flag and they are very wild about raising the flag so that then they can punt being responsible and doing ethical behaviors yeah. to the government and saying, oh, well, we're, we're waiting for the regulation. We're waiting for the regulation. I think there are a lot of those right now in the, in the big AI company space. The downside for the small companies is that they're not as vocal. And when people think of AI, I think OpenAI and ChatGPT are now household names. There are some really incredible companies out there that are doing phenomenal work that are not household names and that probably will not be because of how some of these bigger players are really rising up and waving the flag wherever they go. I think that happens everywhere, though. I, I feel very comfortable from my time in government that whether it be the Justice Department, the White House, the Defense Department, there are so many different ways that there is public input from companies of all sizes, from academics, from individual civil society groups, that it was very, it it made me feel proud to be an American, that we're really, and and all of that kind of of rulemaking and agency procedure, there is that opportunity for people to provide input. And I love that.
0: Yeah, I well, I really appreciate your optimism on that because I think that is a concern of a lot of people, but hearing from someone like yourself that has been in it and still quite optimistic on it, I think uh, a lot of people will be happy to hear that. Something I'd love to ask you, because I know you have a kind of a background in this. um, How do you think AI is going to impact the legal landscape, particularly in kind of the realm of cybersecurity?
1: Absolutely. AI and cybersecurity is moving very quickly, and it's very exciting. Um, I think that there's there's a big problem, especially in you know the past five years, and I certainly saw a ton of this as a prosecutor with computer hacking and, and intellectual property crimes too. And AI can do a lot of good here. Um, there are, there are AI algorithms that can help protect infrastructure before cyber attacks. There are AI algorithms that can help kind of determine where there might be a malware and. That is huge. That saves federal agents a lot of time and a lot of money and resources because they can now use this AI algorithm as an aid to find out and to potentially kind of preempt any kinds of cyber attack. So that's cool. In the legal landscape too, I you know a lot of folks are talking about how AI is going to replace the first year associate at law firms. I think that there's a lot about AI being able to write case law and or not necessarily case law, but write briefs and motion practice and do litigation and contracts. And there I think there is gonna be a lot of that. That you know, anything that saves firms and companies time and money will be used. But I, I'm hoping that in the the corporate legal world there's always that fundamental principle of Human in the loop that we always talk about with responsible AI, and that none of these contracts that an AI algorithm is writing becomes the final one. To me, the bigger concern is that the general public will then think that they can be a lawyer or a doctor or an engineer because they're going to ChatGPT and ChatGPT is telling them how to do this or, or any other kind of AI algorithm. And then they are forgetting that no one who's really, no one who's a professional engineer is actually going to only trust what the AI algorithm tells them. There is going to be someone who's trained and who has seen so many different kinds of circumstances and experiences and knows how to put all these things together AI and can start to try to mimic the human brain. But I, I hope that we always remember that we should be the final say on absolutely everything.
0: I love that. And I 100 percent agree. I mean, you brought up your concerns at the beginning where China's literally the litigating and judging people and really do not want to get in that same situation here in the United States. Um, Natalie, as we're wrapping up today, really appreciate you coming on. I would love to hear your perspective on, um, where you think some predictions on where you think AI is headed in the next kind of three to five years. What are some things based off of your perspective that you think people should be looking out for, um, that we might be see coming down the pipe?
1: Yeah. One of the AI potentials that I'm the most excited about is AI and healthcare. I mean, this is, this is a field where we are seeing incredible advancements already. I, you know, they're, they're talking about using AI to help people with ALS be able to communicate with their loved ones. That's awesome. That changes people's lives for the good. I love AI in education. I mean, I, I absolutely love a company like Khan Academy that's using AI to to kind of reach underserved people and population that would not necessarily have access to a tutor or a teacher. So those are some of the things that give me hope about this space. I do think we are going to end up moving to a time in the next five to 10 years, probably closer to five years where all of the buzz and excitement about AI levels off because all these AI tools become such a regular part of our daily lives that it stops being such a hype in a way. Um, And and we will see shifts in in how we do things every day. I mean, kids might not learn how to edit so well because they don't really have to anymore for better or for worse. We, We might end up seeing a lot more doctors relying on AI tools to kind of provide the first scan of MRIs to see where different problems might lie, but that's not necessarily a bad thing. I'm, I'm all am lives. And I do think that we are moving towards some really exciting use cases for that.
0: Totally agree. I'm so excited for them. And I agree with you. Healthcare is one of the areas that I talk about on my podcast all the time. I think people get sick of me like being excited about that area, but it is so phenomenal. And obviously like just so many use cases doesn't seem very controversial how much that's going to help people. Um, Something I would love to ask you about um, as we wrap up, if people are if people are interested in feeling like their voice is heard or hearing more about the regulation and what's going down in the government, what's a good, what's a good place? What's a good way for them to um, listen, and learn more about that? Like talking to you today has been phenomenal to kind of get your inside perspective. But for a lot of people, I think they feel like they want to know what's happening in that realm. AI and regulation is incredibly important. Even startup founders. Um, or even just users. What's a good way for them to learn more about that? What's a good place for them to uh, to, to find out more?
1: Absolutely. Um, you know, one of the the good and and also very bad things about the federal government is whenever a federal agency makes a rule or a law, it's required to go through a public notice and comment period, which means that by law, they the federal government is required to let all of us write in our comments. And they really, people really do read them. It really, you're. I think people's voices really are heard. I, I really encourage people, though, to do as much reading as they can, to to do writing, to, to write op-eds if they're kind of more on an op- academic side, to think about how they're using AI in their own companies. One small way to really get involved is to think about how your company and how your own personal use cases of AI could be better or for worse. One of a, a company I'm volunteering at, Pro Bono, recently talked about how we can be using AI to better help our underserved litigants. And and those are the kinds of conversations that are advancing the space, even from a regulatory side, although it might not feel like it in that moment.
0: Absolutely fascinating. Um, Super exciting. So yeah, I think that's uh, a big, something that a lot of people are going to be interested in looking into. Natalie, thank you so much for coming on the podcast today. Sorry that this went a little bit over. You have been uh, phenomenal and you shared so many insights. So it's been incredible. Um, To the listener, thank you so much for tuning into the AI Chat Podcast. Make sure to rate us wherever you get your podcasts.